Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. Welcome to Bipolar Broadcast Podcast. I've got crazy logoria, and you're welcome to listen in. And today's episode on suicide could save your life or someone else's. And today is the first day of Suicide Prevention Week. And September is also Suicide Prevention Awareness Month in Canada. And September 10th is World Suicide Prevention Day. And those are three very big reasons to address the topic of suicide. And I have lots to say, and it's a very sensitive topic. So I'll probably say something that is stupid. But I need to take the chance and say what I can about the topic in the hope that something will be helpful to someone somewhere. And I just read that according to the World Health Organization, someone around the globe dies by suicide every 40 seconds. So within this time that I've been talking already, Two people have died by their own hand. And there's been a few instances when I could have been one of them. And just a couple months ago, I had somebody very, very close to me die by suicide. And that was a complete surprise, meaning that there were no signs, no clues, no nothing. So that one out of every 40 seconds applied to me being one of my loved ones. And I really hope that that never happens to you or anyone listening. And I'm going to talk about it from a bunch of different angles and mainly pertaining to bipolar as that is the topic that I talk about I'm a lived experience expert or expert by lived experience. But this doesn't mean that I am a qualified medical practitioner of any kind and that any of this is meant to be medical advice. Much of what I'm going to share is from my experience of needing to save my own life a few times and also reach out for help in order to save my life and making that decision to do so. And as far as I'm aware, people with a diagnosis of bipolar uh, have a 25% chance of dying by suicide. It could be lower. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a pretty high chance. And for me, in my experience, 
that number feels like it could be correct. I'm still here and I want to be here. Sometimes it's hard. I want to share a story that gives an example of the first time that I saved my life. Before I was ever diagnosed with bipolar, I went into a heightened state for about a month. And then for another month, I was in a heightened state plus what's called psychosis. So it went from really exciting to really scary. And I didn't know what was going on. I thought I might be going crazy. But I was also feeling like it was some kind of spiritual experience or test of some kind. So without sharing all the details of those two months, I'll tell you what happened on the night before I was hospitalized and taken to the psych ward for the first time. So I was in my room and I was feeling very panicked and I was feeling really, really scared. And this extreme emergency fight or flight type feeling came over me. And even though I was in my room, I felt like I was somewhere else. And I felt like I was somewhere where I had the choice between jumping to my death and burning alive. So both choices were death and it was a matter of which one. And with that level of being terrified, I was about to run and jump off the balcony in my room. And I guess that would have been my choice would be to jump instead of burn up. But what happened was that at the last moment, I realized that I had a solution. And that was that I had an item in my room that I thought could save me. And so I ran across the room where I knew it was and opened the drawer grabbed it, and what it was, was a pair of handcuffs that I had purchased at a garage sale when I was eight years old, and I bought it for $1.80 in dimes. The price was $2, but I only had $1.80 in dimes. And I grabbed that item, and I ran to the balcony, and I used the handcuffs, to fasten myself to the railing of the balcony at the bottom so that I had to just sit down or lay down and I couldn't go anywhere. And that was how I saved myself from jumping off the balcony because had I not had that, I'm not sure what would have happened. And it was not a very long way down. It was a second floor balcony, but I probably would have broken something and been laying out there screaming, and I don't know what would have happened. And I managed to lay there all night, and I had some very strange out-of-body experiences because I was stuck there. I experienced all kinds of things. And that's a whole other topic, but basically something I bought when I was eight years old and I always kept 
and I just had it because I sort of liked things and stuff even back then and gadgets came in handy and it saved me from an injury or you know running away with a broken bone and hurting myself and some kind of probably a takedown of a mental health sort and in the morning I was found and I was taken away by an ambulance then I ran away from the hospital and then I was picked up by the police and they handcuffed me so I did need to be handcuffed I suppose but first I did it to myself and for me what happens is that I don't want to end my life but the fear and the panic creates a behavior that is parallel or correlates or is coherent with that level of fear it's almost as if since the fear is so high that it's such that I must be in dire straits and so I I put myself in dire straits or I act as if I'm in that peril and I've had it happen a couple times since where I'm trying to fall asleep and all of a sudden I just jump out of bed and find myself a witness to myself as my body running towards getting some kind of self-harm instrument and most of me doesn't want to do it but I feel, or I think I dissociate. So my thing is that I'm afraid I'm going to do it, but I don't want to. And I'm going to witness myself doing it to my distress. And that happened one other time. So I created a safety thing uh, that I'll talk about later, but it might not be for everyone. And The point is to create one's own unique way of keeping oneself safe. And I don't know what it's like to be in a place where I I really want to do it. But that's not entirely true. There was another time that I did really want to jump from a cliff. And I went there and I was in such pain that I wanted to do it. But I didn't. So it's always a bit of a different flavor when this suicidal feeling comes calling. So this episode might mainly pertain to people who have a sort of dissociative suicidal urge that happens or an urge from extreme pain. One time I was in extreme physical pain. There's so many different ways it can present itself. So the idea here is how do we keep ourselves safe from this temporary urge? And also, what are some of the other things that we can look at that are contextual elements that can bring in some understanding that may prevent some of the urge from coming in the first place. I don't know what the statistic is for people with bipolar 
in terms of how many people and what percentage do have suicidal feelings or thoughts or urges that are really severe. Any form of it is unpleasant. And perhaps there's a point for each person at which it is unbearable, but at the same time still bearable. So let's start with some ideas about safety. And for me, I realize that the more layers of safety I create in my daily life, the more safe I feel and I can explore life and not feel afraid of life because I know I have my emergency plans for any type of suicidal urge in place. And that urge can happen out of nowhere. I did have a few years of a cycle that was pretty consistent with five and a half months of wellness. And then that would hit a wall and I would have three months of unwellness and having to recover my wellness. So if we can find any kind of cycle like that, that can be helpful in predicting when these things might switch over. And again, for me, there's some kind of suicide switch that happens. And it's almost when I'm doing my best and things are going really well, all of a sudden they just tank, which can be depressing and it can be hard and unmotivating to keep going because everything that I was able to build then broke down. But I also found that by building more and more wellness into my life, I was able to build a mountain of wellness and then sort of after I fell out of that wellness, I was able to just climb up that mountain that I already built, which took a bit of time, but it didn't take nearly as much time and effort as building the mountain originally. And a few things that I did to make myself feel safe. Uh, Firstly, I filled out the medical ID section in the health app on my iPhone. I put in my medications. I put in emergency contacts. I put ICE, standing for in case of emergency, beside some people in my contacts. That's maybe a little bit redundant because of the medical ID, but I just wanted to know that if something happened and somebody found me and I had my phone and I was just sort of laying there, not able to move because sometimes that would happen to me, I'd usually sit there. They would be able to look at my phone and, and see what was wrong. And the other part of that is that I only know about the iPhone, but there is an emergency SOS feature. So if I press the power button to power off, it'll also give an option for emergency SOS activation. And these different ways of activating it can change depending on your phone model, depending on the software updates. So always check for your particular device. I also believe that the phone that I have right now, 
the iPhone XS Max, I can press the power button five times in a row and it will activate the emergency SOS. And I may also be able to use the Hey Siri feature to activate it as well. And the great thing too is you can set it up so whoever your emergency contacts are will get a text message with your location as well. This can be really helpful if, like me, there is some sort of suicidal urge or a dissociation that can lead to a suicide attempt when, when our true self doesn't even want to do it at all. I also found out about another strange thing where I can't remember what it's called, but there's a guy named Riley Dane who created a movie called The Abundance Factor. And in the beginning of the movie, he shared a story about how one day he woke up in the hospital because he walked off the balcony in his sleep. And he had no marks or bruises, but he could have and should have died. Another thing is that the Apple Watch, the newest one, has fall detection, which could be helpful for some things. Also having a crisis line phone number in our phone and in our favorites so we can access it quickly. And just not being afraid to call emergency services. For me, I get to a place sometimes where I have very few seconds left before I have the decision of making, of making the call to emergency services or being beyond control where that dissociation and that suicidal urge might completely take over me. And the one strategy that I developed is that first, I got another pair of handcuffs on eBay. And second, for a more portable version, I carry a longer zap strap in a Ziploc bag. Because really, it symbolizes that if I feel like my body's about to take over and have a mind of its own in fear and panic, like something else is happening than the situation, then I have the chance and the choice to just quickly, um, you know, put my wrist or my ankle to something and not really be able to get loose because I'm not strong enough to break that. Now that can work both ways, whereas if as long as I have someone to communicate with that can help me out and get detached from that. At some point, I would probably wait until I calm down. But the thing is, since I developed that, I haven't had to actually use it. I've had to almost use it two or three times. But the thing is, when I pull that out and I realize that I have more time now, I have more time to think because I'm safe. I can just quickly do it. So it buys me more time. And then one time I was going to use it because I jumped out of bed and I felt that panic and I felt like I was going to harm myself. And so I grabbed, I knew where I was going to do it, where there was nothing around that I could hurt myself and it was stable. And then I moved things out of the way 
And then I st- I grabbed a blanket to sit on. And I'm like, oh, I have more time. I'll grab my laptop. Oh, and then I had more time. And then I grabbed something else. And then by the time I grabbed a few things to make myself comfortable enough to sit there for a bit and wait it out, it went away. It was still scary, but it was gone because I had outsmarted it, really. And I did call a family member just for help, but I didn't have to go to the hospital. And it seems, too, that once I start to make rational decisions, like, oh, well, I better have a blanket. Oh, well, I better have a book to read. Oh, this, oh, that. Then the irrational, scary energy goes away. And the thing, too, is I always make sure that I have my phone and a charger and that it's charged so that I can call for help for somebody to come and get me. And the reason I wanted to wait before calling for help is because I wanted to see if it would just sort of go away. Like, I don't need to call for an ambulance if it goes away. And it did go away. And also, I was prepared to wait it out for like a day and just kind of chill there if it kept going, but it didn't. Since I got through a whole night, the very first time, I know that I can sort of hang out there and then call for help whenever I want. And like I said, this doesn't work for everyone or wouldn't work for everyone, but it could work if you're like me and you have a similar type of experience. And I feel that this takes a lot of the fear out of it. I haven't been carrying one around for a while because I don't think that's really going to happen again like that. And also, sometimes going to the psych ward can be scary. It can be really scary. And it can be scary the first time. It can be scary the third time. It can be scary the sixth time. I think I've been there five or six times. And the first five times... It was okay, and then the sixth time it was scary, and then the seventh time it was okay. But all those times I did need to go, and I like to see it as a portal back to sort of mainstream consensus consciousness, because often I'll have a really high period of time with lots of energy and creativity and everything wonderful, and then in a way, what goes up in consciousness is sort of like gravity and also comes back down. And the coming back down is scary. Just like a come down off of any sort of euphoric state by any sort of means possible, whether it's volitional or non-volitional, it's scary. It's called a come down in a way. So... It is a portal. It's not the greatest one, but it is sort of a safe place where people are watching to make sure that you're not going to harm yourself. And overall, I've found it helpful, though it's it's often scary. So a way to ameliorate some of that fear is to have a crisis plan and 
Sometimes it's called a Ulysses agreement or an advance directive. And that's sort of saying what what are our wishes during that time in a crisis. Where do we want to go? Like favorite hospital, favorite facility, favorite medications. Now, of course, the doctor who is there has does not have to listen to that. I think in general, it is getting a little bit better and better because I had a problem with that for a while, but then to me now it makes sense because sometimes the doctor there does know of something that will be helpful. And I used that approach on my most recent hospitalization about a year and a half ago, and it worked out just fine. They gave me some medications that I'd never been on before, and I wasn't really thrilled, but I was like, just do whatever you're going to do. It's fine. For me, I created a crisis plan through Wellness Recovery Action Plan, RAP. There is a RAP app that is free, W-R-A-P, and it has a bunch of great stuff in there for creating safety and wellness and everything like that. And I also created a representation agreement so so people in my circle can speak on my behalf if I'm in the hospital. So if I have a advanced directive, they have a copy and they can share it on my behalf because I might not be able to access the copy in my phone when I'm in the hospital. And all of these things help to make me feel safe. Now I trust that it'll be fine. I don't really need to do that. But sometimes if there's mistrust in the system, and there was after a hospitalization that was troublesome for me, this helped to sort of reestablish my trust in, in them and myself. And my experiences with the system have been like, 99% positive so that was there was a lot that was messed up by that 1% experience and I had to do a lot of work to make myself feel safe and feel safe that I would call for help to go there because that was my fear is that now the place I went to because I felt safe to go to so they would like help me press the reset button reconnect with reality and not be psychotic and suicidal now that experience in the psych ward made me afraid that when those last few seconds were ticking down and I had to to really will myself with every last iota of strength I had to call for help or do something that was a gesture towards I want to live I thought that that wouldn't I wouldn't make that choice so I had to take a couple of years and really take it easy and not do as much so that I could recover that trust. And so these are some of the things that I did and they helped, but there could be any number of things that could be done. And hopefully it's somewhat clear as to how these are helpful in suicide prevention. And I think they were for me. And another thing I did is when I I started to travel internationally, I got myself a medical ID bracelet made with bipolar disorder one, yada, 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 
stuff like that. So then if I started to panic and all of a sudden people just didn't know what was going on, they would see that I'm wearing an emergency bracelet because I didn't have I didn't have the the friends and family around to speak up for me. So I think it also said see iPhone medical ID so that had more details. Now I was also hopeful that nothing did happen while traveling internationally because I would have no medical insurance for that. So that's another reason why I created all these different layers of safety that to me build up to create a context through which I'm going to behave in a way to reach out to save my life if something happens that makes me feel panicky or or suicidal or psychotic. And uh it did happen when I was traveling internationally. So, you know, there were challenges, but and I even told myself that if anything at all happened, I would go home, but I was able to keep going and and figure some of it out. And that travel that I did was a dream come true that I never thought would come true when I was first diagnosed years before. And to me, having those dreams come true is actually quite a big thing for suicide prevention. Because if I were never if I was never able to do that, then I would have less reason to think that I could accomplish other dreams in the future. So I had my dream of traveling and um, staying somewhere that I wanted to stay for an extended period of time. I went and I saw Celine Dion in Vegas. That was one of my goals because watching her videos and documentaries and movies and stuff and music videos when I was first in the psych ward for some reason made me feel safe and sort of like looking up to this really wonderful person who's talented and and gracious. So I wanted to go see her in concert, even though I'm not like, I don't really, I'm not really a celebrity person, but it was, it was a thing to do with how I feel like she helped me when I was in that really, really low state in my very first hospitalization. So yeah, going for one's dreams is super important. And that's why creating this safety through different gestures and different contexts is really helpful for being able to feel safe enough to go for one's dreams. And for me, I also had the bipolar biorhythm of, you know, good for five months, not so good for three. So I was able to time things and also know that I was probably going to be okay for a while to do things. But there were some close calls. And also I did miss out on things that I had planned. And then all of a sudden I was in a crisis and all of a sudden I was in the hospital and I couldn't go. But I didn't let that get me down and just knew that I was going to miss out on things and I was going to be able to do things. But for me, I try to live as much as I can when I'm doing well. And when I'm not doing well, I just sort of weather the storm and know that it'll be okay again and not 
punish myself or anything and or think it's a failure or anything like that. And I did have some really challenging times and now I'm in a place where I've been well for over a year when usually I'm only well for five months. So something has shifted and even though I had those cycles like five or six times of of having five months well and three months not well, that cycle is finally broken. So now I'm in this space where I really don't know when things are going to tank. And that's okay. The first time I was in the hospital after I came out, I had a severe akesthesia reaction, which is that real restlessness, that really uncomfortable restlessness, like wanting to crawl out of one's own skin. And I had that for, I don't know how long, but it was really, really unbearable. And to get rid of that feeling, I thought I might jump off a bridge. So I feel some of these safety measures can be helpful for these types of things where it's just really uncomfortable and however it goes for bipolar disorder specifically. I think I just let out a fart and I'm not sure if that's going to show up on the recording, but oh well, I'm not going to edit it. A few other things I do to feel safe is I like to carry like a backpack with a few things in it that I just always have in there before I would have my crisis meds in there. I used to carry a water filtration straw that can be used to drink river water. And also I'd have my phone with a charging cable or a way to charge it and even like a small solar panel because with some water and with your phone and a charging cable with like a survival app that has some of the survival stuff but actually on your phone and not requiring data then I think we'd be good and I'm only mentioning that because sometimes I get this sort of doomsday feeling that isn't that delusional considering what's going on in the world now. So it might be wise to have these things because we can survive for quite a long time just on water only. And I do have one in my car. So depending on my state, I find that I start gathering certain things and putting them in certain places that are more accessible. And that's another thing too is whatever items make us feel safe, make sure we put them in a safe place that we know where they are, we know how to get them. And that's important because had I not known where those handcuffs were, I could have been living my life in a wheelchair. But I know where my stuff is in general and I like to keep it in visual field. So What makes me feel safe might be completely different from what makes you feel safe. I remember hearing a story of someone who, when they had this panic come over them, they would run and jump in the shower in their clothes, and that would make them feel better. It didn't go over very well in the psych ward, but that person was actually doing something to get rid of that horrible feeling that worked. Now, 
that wouldn't work for me. I don't, I don't need to do that. But you might find me stuck to some small tree or something. And I want to share a short bit from Dr. Peter Smith. And his website is Balancing Brain. What is it here? Balancingbrainchemistry.co.uk. And he has a page on suicide and a prescription for suicidality, which is a bunch of remedies and stuff. But this should only be used in, in conjunction with experts, of course. But he does say, it may feel like you're consciously choosing the suicide option, but you have an illness and it's messing with your mind. One of the ways that depressive illness messes with your mind is it gives you the perception that nothing will help, but that's the illness talking. I know from the position of inside the condition where you stand alone with the feelings of despair, pain, and hopelessness, and they feel real, but it's the illness creating that psychology. You have an illness and it's trying to kill you. Just like people who have cancer have an illness that's trying to kill them. And for me, I'm not big on augmenting the word illness. I prefer to say bipolar rather than bipolar disorder, even though I do think it squeaked out just like that fart. One can say bipolarity, bipolarism. Sometimes I say omnipolar because... Really, it's not just up and down. It's all over the map. And most of it is a very rich experience. And, of course, that's different for everybody, what that really unfolds as. But in this case, I do like what he's saying, that there's something that's trying to kill us in a way, at least in the case of mental health, like... We're trying to survive this real pain that is consuming us. And it does make us feel like nothing will ever get better. And on another note, I remember watching something on YouTube about a man who did end his life and there was a quote from him saying he didn't want to start back again at square zero. And that was really sad to me because the psych ward is not worse than suicide. Start from square zero. Start from square minus infinity. Just start again. If you've experienced bipolar long enough, you may have the sense that life is not always meant to be linear. We want life to go like nations want the economy to go, which is a persistent linear growth at a comfortable rate. But that's not how it works for us. And we have to, not have to, but we can get used to being uncomfortable. So I want to switch gears and spend a little bit of time on some bipolar context. And this stuff isn't directly related to preventing suicide, but I'm sharing some of the things that 
I've discovered or things that have come to my mind that could be helpful if you take what I've said and then put that into your own context or extrapolate that to your own experience and what that means to you. I've created my yellow brick road of meaning and context for myself and hopefully by sharing it that can give some of these meanings to others so that a unique context can be built that is helpful for you because for me creating context and each point is a bit of context also has helped to create a sense of safety for me because I've created my own understanding or by creating these these contexts I've created my ability to understand in my own unique way almost anything that comes my way and in that way Nothing is scary because I have a greater context in which to put it. So when I first started experiencing strange things and extraordinary states of consciousness, I wouldn't really know what to do with the information that was coming to me. But by sort of engaging in a conversation or a self-dialogue with the context that was coming to my mind and I was writing down, I was able to create a huge web of context that later experiences turned out not to be scary because they fit into the context that I already created. And another way to think about that is all these signs and symptoms that are called bipolar happen after these signs and symptoms and behaviors manifest and then it's put into a context of mental illness. And that is helpful and has a lot of helpful aspects and can really be of service to being able to access services and resources to to build a new life. But it's not everything. It's not all of life. It doesn't cover every aspect of life. So for me, I whatever comes to me that doesn't fit into that context, I create my own context. And in that way, the medical part of the condition is a small part of my life and the rest of it is my life so in a way i'm i'm building my my brain i'm building my nervous system to match that which is coming into my mind and a small example something that happened today and this sort of stuff happens all the time is that um I went outside to pick some kale from the garden to put in my smoothie. And then I put the kale in the sink to rinse it and let it soak to see if any bugs came off. And when I went back to the sink, I saw this tiny, tiny little worm. It was probably like half a centimeter long. And I picked it out of the water and I walked outside and I went up the stairs from the basement suite and all the way around and found a nice spot for the worm and I put him on a rose a white rose and then as soon as I looked I looked down and to my right and there was a four-leaf clover so had I not taken the time to pick out a worm from the water and bring him all the way outside 
I wouldn't have found that four-leaf clover. And these sorts of things happen all the time. And to me, that's a sign from the universe, from Gaia saying, well, that was nice of you. Here's a four-leaf clover. Or, yeah, you're on the right track. Or that affectionate attention to something that could be seen as insignificant was significant. And I found a four-leaf clover. And in the last couple months, I've found three of them. And I had been looking for them in the week before, and I hadn't find, found any. But as soon as I did the thing with the worm, I found one immediately. Now, maybe that's not a big deal, but to me, that is the afterglow of living life, saving a worm's life, and then getting the life of a four-leaf clover. So that's the magic of life, and it's happening all the time. And now back to when that magic ends. And for me, I call that hitting the wall, or the tipping point, or the switch. And the general feeling I get when it switches from mania and everything's happy to psychosis, where things are scary and things being scary and fearful, it could lead to feeling suicidal or having that urge. Generally, I get this feeling like I know too much or she knows too much. And that feeling could be different for other people. And once I have that feeling that I know too much, then I can have fear. Another thing I feel that can lead to a switch into psychosis or something like that, is anger. I feel like anger can damage the brain and sort of damage the subtle structures of the brain that manic fun was building. And then when the brain is damaged, it starts to retreat and go back to the old structures that it's used to, like the egoic structure that we're used to and it's sort of the ego of society and how we fit into society and the mainstream consensus world. And going from mania to all of a sudden realizing we're starting to descend in the gravity of consciousness into the lower ego structures can be fearful in itself. And I also feel that once the whole manic organism realizes it's starting to descend. It can almost want to make the decision like, I'd rather not go back. I'd rather end my life. So these are some of the reasons to be beware and be mindful of that switch when it switches from fun times. And I don't know much about other forms of bipolar like rapid cycling or bipolar 2, my type is bipolar 1 with psychotic features, which I think is one of the more extreme, extreme kinds. So hopefully this being relating to the most extreme kind that most people with bipolar don't have to be quite so diligent as I've had to be. But hopefully also that this can be helpful to be like, well, you can take it or leave it and and go from there. So after I feel like I know too much, 
I can start running or retreating or being afraid or being paranoid in a way. And I find that once I start to retreat, there's a good chance that I'm going to need treatment. And it's treatment for the feeling that something is after me and all the stories that go along with that. And it's a general feeling of feeling unsafe. So there is some kind of invisible boundary that I seem to step over when I go from mania to psychosis. And it's invisible in that if I saw that boundary and it said, do not cross or you'll be psychotic, I wouldn't cross. But I cross and all of a sudden, oh, it's too late. I went a bit too far. So fight or flight kicks in. And especially when it's really close to feeling the urge of suicide and For me, I tend to freeze. I don't fight or I don't flee anymore. Since that first time, I freeze. And sometimes I literally shake because I feel like I'm freezing. So the body really does go with these metaphors that we've, these metaphors and terms that we've created. And I also create a little progression that speaks to my experience, which is fight or flight or freeze, or feign, or free, or excite, or light. And, um, you know, free and excite or light is more in the manic realm. And fight or flight, or freeze, and perhaps feign are in um, other aspects. Another thing that's happened to me is that sometimes I feel like I can see parallel reality futures and how they end, and I keep stepping from one to another and I'm not sure which one I like and the thing to do is just freeze. It's like a game of would you rather? Would you rather it happen this way? Would you rather it happen that way? And sometimes it feels like being in that movie Final Destination. Two other interesting movies that have suicide as a theme are The Discovery and also Mind Gamers. But... Those are psychological thrillers, so if your brain can't handle those, then steer clear. It could be that psychosis is a negative feedback loop that is trying to correct against the impacts of the positive feedback loop of mania. So it tries to sort of rebalance and restore us to the right timeline. And that can be scary. One time I even had a stigmata-like experience where for no apparent reason there was blood on some red peppers that I had sitting on the counter. I even have a picture. So things that are scary like that, they can actually be something that could drive me crazy and make me want to end my life so I don't experience these scary things. But for me, I try to use the perspective of a pregnant woman for my really, really scary and extreme experiences that, you know, after it, I just, after giving birth to those experiences, I just forget. I just, oh, okay, whatever, move on. And I try to do that with the positive ones too. Though I like to remember them, but I forget the intensity of the energy of the experience of it. But there's nothing that I can't or I purposely and really need to erase from my memory. 
And the thing that I was talking about earlier is bipolar can be dangerous if not managed properly. If it's unmanaged, but it can equally be as dangerous if it's unmagicked. And for me, I do like to dwell in the space of the possibilities of magic. So then that to me is good medicine. Just like laughter is good medicine, meaningfulness is too, and magic and wondering about the awe of the universe and some of the things that it shows me and that I feel grateful, even though it means that there's some awfulness I have to experience too. The choice is being completely mediocre and mundane or the alternative is that and that would suck and finding meaning in these experiences is helpful for me because it brings a lot of meaning and I think meaning is an antidote to hopelessness and mania is a state that shows our deepest potential sometimes and psychosis can be a state that shows our darkest potential but in both states we don't need to act on those things and um, some of our potential that we experience in mania, we may or may not ever be able to fully embody. We might get a taste of a hundred different bits of possible potential and only ever really embody two or three of those things. We just don't have the time or energy or capacity to be all those things because mania shows in a way that we can be anything but we still need to choose. And in the same time, or in psychosis, it can show that we are capable of some pretty terrible things, but we there's still that energy to not act upon it. And sometimes people do, and that happens too. This isn't a place of judgment. Um, to me, learning and learning is an endless process and we can become lifelong learners about our process and what we go through in these different states and in my experience that tells the brain the right information because the brain is designed to learn so as long as we're learning the brain is fulfilling its function moment to moment no accumulation necessary. No, oh, I have to learn more and I have to learn this and I have to learn that. I learned from putting the worm outside today and that wasn't planned. And I've read before and I thought of this myself that in bipolar sometimes we can become these canaries in the coal mine. And they t would take canaries in the coal mine because of they would sense if there's enough oxygen or something. And... In, with bipolar, we can see things that other people can't see. We're aware of other patterns and we're aware of other energies and it's really challenging to communicate them. And this can be frustrating too because sometimes we feel like we have life-saving information for other people and that as a society, as a collective, we're slowly walking towards a collective suicide and that isn't insane and that's something that is said in media and 
science and so many different things, but I feel sometimes when we're in certain states of bipolar, we can actually feel and sense that experientially, like the things that are true, we can sense and we're trying to, we're kind of trying to share it with people, but they're not really listening. And um, one thing I feel that eventually we can do is learn to communicate rather than just express. And I don't mean just, but a lot of the ways that we express ourselves when we're in heightened states, people that aren't bipolar don't have the capacity to comprehend it. It's kind of gibberish. So if we really want to communicate, we need to sort of sit down and be intentional and write it in a way that can, oops, sorry, that can be communicated. So it's interesting how sometimes we have this information and then all of a sudden we're going into this state where we feel like we might end our own lives despite feeling before like we wanted to share information to help others and it's like they can't take it so we can't help so what's our what's our purpose what's the point there's so many different lines of thought that can go from there and then we end up sort of stretching ourselves thin and burning out our brain and our resources trying to do that or whatever it is we try to do not everybody does that I'm sure but a lot of us do and that's why we can be labeled as grandiose and for me I've utilized a process of writing things down or writing things in my phone as opposed to speaking them out loud immediately so harvesting them harvesting this information for later communication rather than immediate expression and that could eliminate some frustration but it takes a while to be able to sort through the huge bombardment of information and there's also a thing in some kind of tradition I can't remember which one it is but a lot of people who are thought to be enlightened beings when they get enlightened they have the choice to live or die they have the choice to stay on earth or they have the choice to just go on like they're just be done with life and whoever who knows what happens only they know or they don't but some of them just die or some of them become enlightened and they're just incapacitated unless they had somebody like spoon feed them for months they would have just been laying there in a state of bliss and then died so the ones who come back in some tradition they're called bodhisattva and really what they did is they chose to live to come back and to try to bring some of this information but I feel that also that could apply to people with bipolar, but it might take some time to really find that bodhisattva-hood. And by, by taking a role or by choosing a role, maybe it's not bodhisattva, maybe it's something else, then we are creating our own new place in this world that isn't only about having... A mental illness diagnosis and that can be one slice of the life pie that 
that creates the context for certain actions within that system and interactions and relationships and behaviors and things like that. But there's a whole other part that we can still create and we can pick up the pieces of what we were given in higher states and and begin to build. Because information is only created through living organisms and we have been given access to some that could be important. Those are some thoughts on psychosis and then I talked about a little bit what it's like to hit the wall or to fall and once psychosis is sort of to the point where I can go no more then I start to fall and I feel heavy just like I'm going up in an elevator but also knowing that I'm going down and it's like reaching the edge of how far I can go and I've done all that I can do during this round. Sometimes I feel like I'm dying or I usually do feel like I'm dying and sometimes I feel like I stop breathing and if I have a really big mania my brain is probably mush for a while and it eventually heals and adapts to the medications. In my experience that any energy that's there that goes to enhance anger and hurts and judgments, it starts to eat away at my brain cells. In a way, all those sorts of feelings are brain damage and they damage the brain. To me, also in this state, there can sometimes be a test from the universe to see if we'll harm another being, but it's really, really important not to. There can be a lot of grief and loss of the former glory of mania and the manic energy and the manic way of life. But mania doesn't last. There's a self-sabotaging mechanism that brings us back down to earth. And if we can keep that in mind, it can be helpful when we are in the manic state not to do as much that are things that we do based on the assumption that it's going to go on forever. We're going to feel this inner richness forever. We're going to feel like a million bucks forever. We're going to feel like we have a million bucks forever. We're going to spend like we have a million bucks forever. There's also something called the three-day effect, and I've seen it as a theme in a few places, and it relates to how it's possible that after three days, this will let up this extreme, extreme, awful state. And there's also been another three-day parallel is a study they did, a pilot study for keeping people in mania in the dark for three days. And that also helps to decrease. Um, They could have been in psychosis too, I don't know. But uh, there's another way also to put blackout blinds in your bedroom to keep it really dark. So then that can basically reduce the stimulus and the information overload that's happening and it could calm things down. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's just a little part of it. And with these things that I'm saying, it it can just add bricks upon bricks of things that become frustrating or hopeless or why continue or this or that. But each time it ends, it's a new beginning and 
generally people don't really remember much of what went on. So I tend to just sort of forget about it and move on and create something else. And it's it's kind of like living, being a video game character where you you do end your life and you have to start back at the beginning of the game. And this time you can go somewhere else and do it differently, but at some point, eventually, it's going to end and you're going to have to start a game. And you keep doing that until eventually you finish the game. And it could be that this whole thing is some energy playing a game with itself. And it could be the game of hide-and-seek, like Alan Watts says. A game of hide-and-seek. There's got to be something to hide and something to seek. But as he says it, it's all one thing. It's all, it's all oneness. The up and the down, the good and the bad. And it's all one thing. And to go with that, I feel that the responsibility isn't completely 100% on our shoulders in figuring all of that out because... When we descend from higher states of consciousness and energy, it is a test of society or for society, how they support us, how they care for us. Do they hold us with compassion? Do they hold us like they would hold astronauts up who have been on an intense journey that's both physically and mentally taxing, going to the frontiers of what is possible. And I feel like we're inner astronauts. And when we are treated as we are, which is not always the greatest, then society isn't passing their test, just as maybe we're not quite passing ours when we're in our states and we have to come back but we're not listened to when we're in our higher states, but we can take what we heard and learned from our higher states and make it into something that is listenable to other people. And there is a bipolar preparedness. Prepare, practice, paradise, purgatory, prison, punishment. I think there should be play in there somewhere too. I liken bipolar to a kind of acquired sensitivity or acquired empathy or being an empath before these things were filtered out and then all of a sudden the filter is removed and there's a deluge of information and it's difficult to process and make sense of it because of its newness and volume. But there's a possibility that a lot of this information and and the sensations that we have are even more truthful than what we were conditioned to think was true. So that doesn't make it any easier. And a lot of times we're told what we experience wasn't real, yet it's known that we all hallucinate our conscious reality. And even if it wasn't objectively real, if it's subjectively real and meaningful to the experiencer then it has some value and in my experience there's also a bit of a a grief period and if I piggyback off the seven stages of grief and put them in a completely different order 
then the first phase would be shock, fear, and denial. As soon as that mania ends, there's this shock, this fear, and this denial. Denial in that we want to turn back and go back. And it's a shock to, to see that all of a sudden we've crossed over that line. And then there's a downward turn. And then the third stage can be pain and anger. And the fourth, guilt and bargaining. Just wanting to it, it to come back and we'll do almost anything for it to come back. And after that, there can be depression, rejection and loneliness. Where we can be depressed since the bargaining phase didn't work. And hopefully at stage six, acceptance and hope. And then reconstruction and work through. And starting to test a new reality. And in my experience, I always have a sense when I know it's over. When I can continue. Which usually means that I can start to build something again. There's a lot of information on the website ASSIST. A-C-I-S-T-E and I-A-N-D-S and these are websites about near-death experiences and I feel like psychosis and feeling the urge of suicide can be a near-death experience or a near-death-like experience. So some of that information is somewhat relevant and oftentimes it this whole thing needs a change in medication or more medication for a time and I personally find medication helpful. I wish it wasn't necessary, but it seems to be right now. And for me, there's no point in resisting it because I've found that the more that I learn and I use my body and my attention for learning and creativity, then there really aren't that many side effects. And... I have had some success with not being on medication sometimes, but for the time being, I'm fine with it because I am working on other things right now and it's not affecting my ability to write and think and do the things that I feel are important for me to do right now. And when those things are done, maybe one day I'll explore um, tapering off, but to make that an, a goal at the beginning was was um, challenging because I wasn't quite ready for that. So that is today's podcast and I hope that there was some helpful information in there. Again, it's not medical advice. I will create another podcast with some more on tips for next time. So this was about suicide prevention. And next time I'm going to talk about some tips again from a lived experience perspective on things that can be done to make next time a little easier because with bipolar it's cyclical and there likely will be a next time. There's been a next time for me probably seven or eight times. And each time I learn a lot, but 
the thing with it is, is it's a bit of a trickster because just because I learn a bunch one time doesn't mean it's going to apply next time. The next time it gives a different lesson, a different something happening in the game to trip me up. And sometimes I get to the point where I'm like, come on universe, what the heck is going on here? Really? But that's how it is. And so starting to see it as starting again and going with it is the way that works for me. And I'm kind of wondering if I'm the only one out there like this or if other people like me are like this because generally we talk about our symptoms and our this and our that or craft group, but we don't generally talk about all the meaningful experiences we have had and our, and what they mean to us and the meaning we made out of it and and comparing notes from the inner journey. And we're left to utilize what we're given in order to process our experiences. And I think there's a lot more to it than that. And I hope after listening for this time that you think that too. Stay safe. Don't end your life. Stay on this earth as long as you can with the people who care about you. And just don't do it. If you don't have a diagnosis and you're feeling suicidal, just go to the hospital if that's the last resort or call for help. There is a beautiful, magical world and we can make it happen. Look for four-leaf clovers. See the wonder. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.